Will you please turn with me in your Bibles once again to the Gospel according to Mark, where we are going to be looking together this morning at verses 1 through 20. That's Mark chapter 5, 1 through 20. You can find that passage on page 984 in your pew Bibles. One of the things that I think we have witnessed again and again here in Mark, as he has endeavored to get before us this full revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the biblical Jesus, if you will, is that Jesus truly is Lord of all. We have seen that, right? We've been looking at it for weeks now. Jesus is Lord of all. We saw it in his sound defeating of the devil out in the wilderness. We witnessed it again and again as power went out from Jesus as he healed so many of the people's sicknesses and infirmities and weaknesses. We see it manifested in the way that he teaches and in the way that he ministers to the needs of these great crowds all around him. Those who are there and looking on, seeing and hearing Jesus even make mention that his teaching even possesses a strange new authority, one they had not yet experienced with the scribes and the Pharisees. It was a sort of final, complete, robust authority. We certainly saw it again just last week, as Jesus not only slept peacefully in a little boat in the midst of a violent, deadly storm at sea, but once he was awoken, he spoke but a word to the creation itself. And the wind and the waves immediately obeyed his voice. And we knew, we, we read that there was peace. Beloved, I say all of that to say that Mark has a purpose in all of it. This is King Jesus. This is the Son of God revealed to man. This is God incarnate, God in flesh. And as God, His authority, His power, His sovereignty are all ultimate. You understand, there's none higher, there's none greater. This is not merely just a good teacher or just another kind-hearted man. This is not a mere moral man. This is not an idealist. This is not a magician or anyone's personal guru. No, beloved, the message of Mark is this is God. And we must Come to grips with him. This is how he has been revealed to us in God's word. This is the biblical Jesus. And Mark wants for us to see him as he truly is. By the grace of God, beloved, I hope that we see it. However, though that is certainly central here and of undeniable importance, I want to tell you this morning that there is actually more here than just that. We are seeing much more here than just the power and the authority, even the kindness and the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ here. 
He's been teaching these multitudes that had begun to flock to him in parables. We've spent some time on those, right? Why? Why does he teach in parables? Well, it really is a very sad indicator of the reach and the destruction of sin and its curse that Jesus must indeed do so. Have you ever considered that? The tragedy that parables were necessary. They did the dual work of the kingdom. To those who were graciously called, these parables became a great source of wisdom and comfort and assurance for the child of God. However, to those who were not, they only added more shade, more confusion, more frustration as they did the work of judgment. They brought salvation for one while simultaneously bringing judgment for another. The only thing that separated one hearer from another was the wonderful, matchless grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have witnessed the result of that judgment, haven't we? They've accused Jesus of being but a servant of Satan. They have begun to unify in their hatred of him. And they are plotting and scheming together, even enemies scheming together to find the right opportunity to kill him. Even those who are coming to him for better reasons still do not fully see him for who he truly is. And so these parables, through these parables, he is equipping his people with eyes that truly see and with ears that truly hear. While for others, even as he is revealing the glory of his kingdom, he is hiding in plain sight. Even while he exercises ultimate power over nature, over sickness, over disease, over demons and evil. Eventually, Mark will highlight his command and power over even death itself. Many simply refuse to see him for who he truly is. And for them, the truth is there is no show of power and of authority that is big enough to take their hearts of stone and turn them into soft, pliable hearts of flesh. They only grow harder and harder as Jesus reveals himself more and more. And I say all of that this morning, beloved, to say that though Mark is desperate to get before us the biblical Jesus, and that is certainly critical for us, There is more being revealed to us here. This is the full gospel that Mark is revealing. And we need to see it. Even as Mark reveals to us the glory and the majesty, the spotless righteousness and perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is also repeatedly showing to us the heinous nature of sin. Have you noticed it? It is sin that Jesus Christ had to come down to atone for. Your sin and my sin. 
And Mark shows you the authority of Jesus Christ. As he shows you the authority of Jesus Christ, you are not at all left unaware of your own desperate need for him. Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness and we undoubtedly recognize the temptation in our own lives to to doubt the veracity and the certainty of what God has indeed clearly said. We recognize where our first father Adam failed and where we, we ourselves continue, continue to fail again and again and again. And even as we see where and how the Lord Jesus Christ succeeded for us, we see Jesus speak a word to disease and demons and violent, horrific weather, and we see all of them fall into obedience. And we marvel, right? We marvel to even glimpse, just a, a flickering glimpse of his glory and his power and his majesty. But if you're like me, and you are, we marvel at something else, don't we? We marvel to witness in those things our own wicked inability to get past our own doubts and fears and sin through our own strength. It's really a common thing here in, this, in Mark's account of this message of the kingdom. Even as we see the beauty and the glory of the gospel, we cannot help but to think about the heinousness of sin that necessitated it. Not just Adam and Eve's sin, not just someone else's sin, but my sin and your sin. Not mere slip-ups, not thoughtless little lapses in judgment, but challenging God himself for his throne. Why? Why can we not just look at the power and the majesty of Jesus displayed here and think on on the beauty that he possesses, the authority, the power, and then just find redemption in those things apart from anything in us? Can we not just consider what was right in Jesus Christ and not spend any time on what it is that is wrong with us? course, beloved, the answer is no, because we must see it. These things that are right with Christ are only beautiful to those who know that Jesus needed to do all of these things because of our sin. Jesus came to undo the curse. And so even as Mark places before us the biblical Jesus, he forces us to peer into the evil of evil. Sin and its dreadful effects, not only on the hearts of men, but on the creation itself. And that is precisely what Mark will do in the text that is before us this morning. So I'd like you to follow along again as I read the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 5, verses one through 20. Hear now the word of our Lord. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. 
And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him, and always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened, that he who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. When he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word this morning. We're grateful for the ordinary means of grace that we can gather together for worship and we can sit under the preaching of your word. We pray, Father, through the power of your spirit that you would clear our hearts and our minds this morning of the many, many things that distract us in this life, that we would give our full, undivided attention to your word and hearing your word, knowing your word through the power of your spirit, that we would be transformed by that word for your glory. Encourage us us in Jesus Christ today, and we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, it should probably give us at least some pause to see just how much space Mark gives to this particular narrative in this gospel account. Mark is nothing if not precise and even concise. He has condensed things down. He he lays out the entire gospel account in 16 chapters. But this narrative gets 20 verses. Without a doubt, one of the things that is front and center here is, of course, the absolute power and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ in the face of any and all opposition. It's undeniable in the text. His mere presence 
drives this demon to fall before Jesus and beg for some small mercy from the one who created all things, but with, with, with but a word from his omnipotent mouth. The one whom the creation itself obeys. And so we see that here, right? We're going to speak more about it in a moment, but there's something else here. That though it is there indirectly in the text, I want to tell you that we would do very well to stop and to consider it this morning. There's clearly here, I think, a warning in this man that Mark wants us to see and wants us to think about. Allow me to explain why I would say that. Mark is building a case here for the glory, the majesty, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've already been given an example of Jesus' power or his authority over the demons way back in chapter 1. Do you remember that? Jesus had just began to call his disciples and together they entered Capernaum and Jesus began to teach the crowds that were gathered in the synagogue that day. Mark tells us in verse 22 that the people were astonished at the authority with which Jesus taught them. And then in verse 23, he says this, Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. We saw that the authority of Jesus extended even over the realm of the demonic, as he commanded this unclean spirit to be quiet and to leave this man from his torment. So Mark has already established that small piece of this bigger picture of the complete Christ. His authority truly is over all things. So why bring it up again here in this fifth chapter? A very similar story. Why give it so much more ink here with this example of this legion of demons in this text before us in chapter 5. Well, I think we need to see something else here. That though it may be here, as I said, indirectly, I think it serves us, it serves to make us see the glory of our salvation in Jesus Christ with even more clarity. In this man, we have a very graphic portrait of just what sin truly is And what sin truly does. Do you see that? Sin destroys. It deconstructs. It mars. It disfigures. It kills. It seeks to destroy peace and establish chaos as the rule of your life. We need to see it. We're living in a day where we have certainly begun to call what is evil good and what is good evil. If you doubt that, just turn on your television set and watch the news or really just watch any TV programming at all. You will find that sin has become so normalized in Western culture that really it is the righteousness 
and the word of God, which have come to be sneered at and judged and, and, and hated and marked as irrelevant. We have called what is good evil and what is evil good. Sin destroys. Let's dig in just a bit further. Look at this man and what Mark is telling us here about him in great detail. He is, again, very, very descriptive. And I think you'll see it's for good reason. They, that is Jesus and his disciples, are now entering into the country of the Gadarenes, an area known as the Decapolis or the the Ten Cities. Jesus has just been through another exhausting day of ministering to these great crowds who were flocking to be near him on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And after a few hours of what we know were very rough sailing and some pretty awful weather, they are now on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in an area that I would say we could say with pretty much certainty uh, that was inhabited by Gentiles. The pigs being kept there where this boat lands or at least near it is a pretty good indicator of who lives there. For the Israelites, pigs were of course unclean. They did not want to be near, near them. They certainly did not eat them because of their being expressly forbidden in the holy law of God. So the fact that they are being kept here tells us about this area where they are, not only just here, but there are nearby no less than 2,000 pigs being kept together. And Jesus no sooner gets out of the boat and Mark describes for us his immediate encounter with this man. Look with me at verse 2. Immediately, Mark says, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And it leads me to the first thing that I think we need to see here about what evil or what sin does. Sin or evil isolates. It isolates. You understand, this man is very much alone. He's not in the city. He's not with other people. He's alone. He's all alone, and he's alone for good reason. Mark tells us this man is known for lurking about in the night, day and night, among the tombs, in the mountains, crying out, screaming, and cutting himself with stones. It's the kind of behavior that makes it difficult to keep any kind of regular social calendar. He's not just alone. He's, of course, staying with the dead in the tombs. He's surrounded by death, being dead, spiritually dead himself. And so right out of the gate, we need to see how contrary sin is when held up to life in the big sky, glorious kingdom of God. I want you to think about it. Think about what the gospel, the message of the kingdom does. Beloved, we talk about it all the time. For the child of God, the gospel bears the fruit of the kingdom. And it should certainly not be driving us into isolation. It should definitely not be alienating us from one another. If we love God, if we have embraced the gospel by faith, we should be loving one another. Not just in theory, 
but in action. There is a very real sense in the Christian life where we could say that the best way we show our love to God is when we are very clearly loving his people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's not the case with sin, is it? Though sin is alluring, though it makes bold promises at the beginning, quite simply stated, sin is just death dressed up as life. It promises the good life while it destroys us from the inside out. It gets us to buy into the lie that nothing outside of us and our puny little empires of dirt actually matter. It drives us to complete isolation eventually because no one could ever satisfy me like I can. No one could ever live up to my expectations. It's really all about me. Sin isolates. And we need to see it. It allows us to wrongly believe that there is more possible contentment in being entirely alone, living entirely for self, than there is in living among the very people of God and His kingdom. Wandering alone, surrounded by death. That's the effect of the curse, right? The wages of sin is death. And we see that here with this man. He is dead and living among the dead. It's a lie from Satan himself that there is some kind of joy in being isolated from your brothers and sisters in Christ. So I'm asking you this morning, do you see it? Is this not exactly what sin is? does. Think about it. I want you to really dig deep this morning and think about your own sin. I promise you have it. What do you do when someone disagrees with you? Or when you have been wronged and you've decided that you and you alone are completely justified in hanging on to your grudge? What do you do? You separate. You isolate. You leave. You shut out those whom you cannot forgive. You nurse and coddle your sin and it drives you into isolation and away from comfort. Do you recognize it? We also see here that the people have, of course, responded wrongly to evil here as well. What did they do with this man and his evil? Well, Mark tells us they tried to restrain him with chains and shackles. And of course, all of them failed. Do you see that? Mark tells us the man would break the chains and the shackles into pieces. Chains cannot restrain evil. The further these demonic forces drove this man into madness, the scarier he became to all those around him. And so their answer for what was happening was to to rise up and seek to restrain it. To just bind it up. To protect themselves by keeping the man from harming himself and others. Is that how we deal with the curse of sin? With evil in the kingdom of God? 
Of course, the answer is no. However, beloved, far too many of us, I am sure, know all too well this very tactic for dealing with sin, don't we? Can you relate to it? There's something very important for us to see here, and I want to say it as clearly as I can. It is impossible to restrain evil through our own efforts. Do you believe that? The people thought, if we could just restrain this man, his evil will at least stop with him, and they bind him up, and it doesn't work. We need to think on this. We need this today, don't we? We certainly need it this past week. We had yet another example of heinous evil in our culture as a young man entered an elementary school in Texas and killed 19 children and two adults and injured others who sought to put a stop to his evil. And immediately... All you hear are all the things that we need to be doing to put a stop to evil. There must be an answer, right? We're better than this. How do we end evil? How do we control wickedness? Well, I fear yet again in our culture we've asked all the wrong questions. The question is not how do we restrain evil. The question is not even how do we stop this from happening again. The question really isn't even how did this happen. Beloved, knowing what we know about sin and evil and the fall, the question we ought to be asking is why does this not happen every single day? Do you take your sin that seriously? We are fallen. This world is living with the effects of the curse. The very curse that Jesus Christ came to set right. And will set right ultimately when he comes again and brings an end to all things. And it would be easy to just write that off as being a a defeatist attitude. But I want to tell you that's not what the gospel leads us to. It's not defeatist. It should lead us to see what the solution truly is. Jesus comes face to face here with the direct result of Adam's sin. What we see here is the deconstruction of man because of sin. The image of God is so marred and so disfigured, it's almost entirely unrecognizable. And here is God face to face with the result of the curse. He's looking into the eyes of sin and evil and its effects. And what will he do? Where is the hope? For those of us who are here where we are living with the reality of evil every single day of our lives. Not only in the wicked acts of others, but even and especially in our own rebellion against the God who is. Where can we find hope 
in a land where simply sending your kids to school results in their untimely death and their murder. Beloved, we can only find it here in the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand? The demons see Jesus coming from afar. That's what Mark says. They see him from afar and they immediately begin to react. They immediately unravel at the seams. They run to him and they fall at his feet and they cry out, What have we to do with you, Jesus? Son of the Most High God. They bowed before him. The New King James says they actually ran and they worshipped him. They groveled at his feet. This evil had been left alone to grow and to fester. It had done the work of deconstruction on the image of Almighty God in this poor, desperate man. Evil had robbed him of the glory of the image of God. He had been dehumanized by evil, by sin. And in the presence of our Savior, in the presence of King Jesus, we need to see this, it was Evil that quaked in horrified fear at the feet of Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see that? Jesus commands the spirits to leave this man and being driven out by divine fiat, they infiltrate a herd of pigs and run off a cliff to their own death by drowning. Beloved, this is the gospel. Mark wants you to see it because we desperately need it, don't we? In a world of so little comfort and so much darkness, how badly do we need the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? As pilgrims in this fallen world, full of our own sin and the sin of others, full of brokenness and sorrow and pain, we desperately need to see Jesus. This is not just another display of power issuing forth from Jesus. It is Jesus doing the glorious work of restoration and redemption. Evil has lost in the end. We cannot fix it. We must run to the feet of Jesus, who alone translates from death to life. Sin has done this work. We are born the natural enemies of Almighty God. We are born under the curse, hating Him. Hating His image. Hating His rule. Hating the good. Hating the concept of living for anything bigger than ourselves. But the Lord Jesus Christ has restored that image. We no longer identify with the stuff of this world. We no longer identify with evil. We no longer must be known for our sin. We are in Christ by faith. Faith that God has so graciously given. He takes our sin with Him to the cross and it dies with Him there. He pays the price. He sets the captives free. We die with Him. We're buried with Him. And now we live with him in resurrected life. Scripture tells us he's advocating for us now at the right hand of the Father in heaven, sanctifying all of our imperfect works. 
as we, with uplifted heads, await his glorious coming again to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. We are now firmly living in the already but not yet tension of awaiting that wonderful and glorious day. We still await final glory. When sin is done away with forever and we worship our Savior face to face. But what about now? What do we need now? Beloved, we need the truth. In Christ, we have all that we can ever need. The best of you cannot fix your own brokenness. You cannot in your own strength restrain even your own evil, let alone someone else's. Only Jesus can take that evil. Only Jesus can make you right. And beloved, the wonderful message here, the good news is that he did. Praise God. Now, you need live in appreciation of it. You need not live in fear. The question you need to ask now is, in light of this revelation of Jesus, what can be taken from you against the will of your God who has moved heaven and earth in order to redeem you? Fear what? Sin? Death? The devil? Evil fears him. It quakes before. None of those can stand in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see it? I want to tell you, beloved, I've I've said it before, but it is precisely why I will never be a shepherd who offers you another clever program to soothe the wounds in your life. I am never going to teach you how to chain up your evil. There will never be a 12-step program coming to you from me Or from this man, this poor soul who had been so tormented by sin and demons, do you see what he does? He obeys. His desire is, of course, never again to leave the side of Jesus. His desire is to spend every waking moment in the presence of Jesus. But Jesus, who did not come, to be a mere talisman, to give comfort to the fearful, says, no, no, that will not do. I have other work for you to do. And he says to the man, just go, go back to your friends, to your family. Tell them all about my mercy and my compassion. Tell them all of my great love for you and the wonderful things that have been done for you. Tell them the good news that life is here to end death in the bite of evil for eternity. Peace has come to destroy the chaos. Joy is here to remove the sorrow. Comfort is here to end the pain. Faith is here to kill the doubt and the fear. And the man doesn't walk away from this apparent rejection of Jesus. He doesn't walk away with his head hung and his soul stinging. Because of this rejection. What does he do? He obeys. Everyone around him, we are told, marveled. Some 
undoubtedly marveled and believed. Others saw the whole thing and they begged Jesus to get out of town, to leave. They wanted to remain comfortable in their own sin, their own evil. They wanted to carve out their own paths to righteousness. And for them, Jesus remained hidden in plain sight. Beloved, you have before you this morning a picture of life and death. And I guess what I want to say to you this morning is that we need to face the reality of our own sin. You cannot brush it under a rug. You cannot cover it with a plastic goodness that will take the edge off of it. You cannot put on enough makeup to cover up the ugliness of it. Mark wants you to see it and to know it. Because the truth is, until you see it and you know it, until you see your own sin nature here, until you face your own wretchedness, you will never see the beauty of this Jesus. We must see the wretchedness of our sin. And so I ask you, do you see it? If you're content to downplay it, to laugh it off as being merely human, to dismiss it in its ugliness, then you do not see it as you ought to, as you need to. If you think that the gossip that you spread yesterday about your neighbor was just a little sin, certainly not as bad as what you see in others, I'm begging you to reconsider the heinousness of your own sin this morning. If you think that your sin of resentment or hatred or disgust, anger with your brothers and sisters in Christ is really not that bad of a thing, I beg you to reconsider. Until you see the graphic nature of the curse for you, you cannot see the glory of this king and this kingdom and this wonderful salvation that has been given to us in him. If that is you, I'm telling you, you can continue to apply the makeup. You'll continue to restrain the evil in yourself through some external means and you will continue to fail. The only way for success in this fight is to trust that Almighty God himself has already fought that battle and won decisively. It was not even close was never for a moment in doubt from Genesis to Revelation. And rather than spending your days waiting to get just a little bit better in Adam, you can know that in Jesus Christ by faith, you are absolutely perfect right now. And you can eagerly await the second coming when Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, fulfills the promise and welcomes you into his glorious presence for eternity. Which will it be for you, beloved? Faith to the glory of God or fear to the frustration of all of your days? Because only one of those ways is life. And all other ways are simply death masquerading as life. Never for a moment fooling the one true God. Amen? Let's pray.